Greetings, and welcome to Flanagan's Ecologic. I am your host, Ted Flanagan, and today I'm joined by my great friend, Rick Heady. Rick is a remarkable guy. He's currently the executive director of the Climate Accountability Institute. He's a greenhouse ga gas expert extraordinary. He's traveled all over the world. He's testified in Congress. He and I worked together at the Rocky Mountain Institute. He's a pilot, one of the best skiers I know. He's an amazing guy, and I'm just delighted to have Rick on the show today. Hey, Rick. Welcome to Flanagan's Ecologic. It's great to see you. How are you doing? Uh, very nice to see you too, Ted. We've been friends for a long time. Good to see yeah, you. We really have. I think since 1986. Yeah. That's, that's when we started. And you were, you were uh, a senior guy at Rocky Mountain Institute, having been there for two years uh, by then. <laughs> In the early days, yes. Right. In the early days. But let's go all the way back because you're a, you're a proud Norwegian. Were you born I in am. Norway? I was born in Norway in 1952, well, you know, way back when. Spent the first 15 years there. It was really formative, I think, for me to live in a country that valued environmental ethics and enjoyed the outdoors and, and uh, dedicated to preserving the wealth and, and health of the world. Yeah, that's great. And why did, you, why did your parents move to America? You know, they had uh, met in New York after the war. They were Norwegian heritage. They wanted to see the country again. They went back for a couple of years, they thought, on the honeymoon and ended up staying for 17 years. And that and was then wanted to bring the my sister and myself and the family back to the U.S. And that and you started off in Connecticut, is that right? Finished high school in Connecticut and then wanted clean snow and clean air and came west to Colorado to University of Colorado for undergraduate studies and then graduate studies after that. Was it was it the snow that really attracted you? Were you already skiing at that point? I have been skiing since I was three. So coming west to, to ski was definitely high on the list. But so was also some distance uh, from the East Coast and uh, finding and uh, placing new routes in Colorado. And I must say, Rick, you are one of the best skiers I, I've ever skied with. So <laughs> I'm not surprised you started at age, at age three. So at University of Colorado in Boulder, you studied geography as an undergrad? Uh, let's go back a little bit, a couple of years further. I started in civil and environmental engineering, but didn't find that to my liking. It was mostly fixing problems that shouldn't exist in the first place. So then I went uh, around the university to study physics and astronomy and social psychology and basket weaving and geography and geology and everything else and settled down on energy and climate change as my focus. And yeah. Antarctica and the future of Antarctica as a secondary focus. And then went to graduate school in, in geography. That's right. And did some thesis work on a geography of presumed recoverable carbon resources around the world. Where are they? Who owns them by nation? That was a fascinating exercise to know not only where they were, but did the recoverable resources exceed the planetary um, safe zone for using those fossil fuels? And my answer in my thesis was no. So that brought me then up to Rocky Mountain Institute and working with Amory, as you mentioned earlier, uh, because he had the evident-first solution to maximize efficient use of carbon so that we didn't need to produce as much as business as usual. So that was an extreme focus for me, and he's, he's been one of the leaders in, in uh, maximizing efficiency in all kinds of resources. Absolutely. Before we go to RMI in a little bit more depth, did you had you you spent some time working with the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder? Is that am I right about that? Well, that was a fellowship that funded the development of my thesis, 
And I did a series of global maps pinpointing either 10 gigatons of carbon per point, you know, coal resource in South Africa and Australia and China and everywhere else. Fascinating exercise to actually quantify where they were. And we ended up with uh, summarizing 4,000 billion tons of carbon. So way more than we can afford to burn. So that was what, like 1982 or early 80s? 1983, sorry, 1983, 1984. Yeah. And bear in mind, that was way before climate change science became deeply rooted in our awareness. There weren't very many climate scientists working them, but National Center for Atmospheric Research was one of them. And we had no idea what the atmospheric um, you know, allowance for future carbon, well, we had some idea, but not a clear idea as we do now, yeah. that we're exceeding our budget or will very shortly. And so reducing and peaking emissions is extremely important. So then, so then you, you, you got your graduate degree in Boulder, uh, and then you went up to the Institute up in Snowmass. And at the time, Amory and Hunter and the crew were building, was the Institute being built at that time, or was it already built? Uh, the residence itself which was mostly finished. Yeah. I think one of my first jobs was to do a path to the front door and maybe plant a couple of aspen trees and that kind of thing just to finish up some of the outside stuff. But it was definitely in the early days. Early days and lots of just hugely creative thinkers that were just drawn to Amory and his, and well, his thing, right? They came in the door every day and there was maybe three employees plus Amory and Hunter and myself. Yeah. In those early days. And then uh, now it's become a very good institution, a very large institution, mostly based in Boulder, but also up here in Old Snowmass. Yeah, very impressive. Well, if you had to, I mean, Amory is something that you and I know really well. And if you had to think about what it is that he taught you, what would you say? What, what did he teach you, Rick? To be aware of energy flows to be aware of where you can make use of energy that's typically wasted. You know, some trivial, trivial examples that uh, I have in my own life is just not to waste hot water uh, in the sink or, or anywhere else. Um, but he also taught me the elements of designing a passive solar, highly energy efficient house myself, not strictly based on his design, but the notion there to maximize solar income because it's free you just have to pay for somewhat more expensive windows and insulation, and in my case, thermal mass in the walls. And so if you think through all those things, you can end up with a design that doesn't cost more. In fact, mine costs way less than the average. Uh, and I had a very low energy bill. I'm not completely off the grid, but my focus was to minimize the energy bills. Yeah, no, it's in your home is, is, is gorgeous. Um, and he, he runs through the whole gamut of, of thousands of examples of how to design buildings and how to deliver cool air and how to lower the heating, I mean, the cooling load in a building in the first place. So you don't work from the, the size of the air conditioner first and then backwards to, to the building, but design the skin and the windows and the heat loads, and then you can minimize the air conditioning load. I, I remember when I was working with you at the Institute, you were working on en the energy subsidy study. And I was, so, I was so impressed by your diligence because it was a multi-year study, right? A deep research project, uh, digging where others really haven't dug before. Uh, it did take some diligence. It did take a long time, probably longer than it should have taken. But we did come up with some important reports and papers. 
Uh, I testified before a House committee uh, under Ed Markey many years ago on energy subsidies. Uh, so we made our mark in the world and Amy and I published an editorial in the Wall Street Journal that I think took some notice about how skewed energy subsidies were favoring monumentally uh, subsidies to fossil fuels, to electrification, to nuclear power, as opposed to the minor subsidies that the Republicans were wailing about that went to wind power and, and solar power in those days. And you just thoroughly documented those numbers. That's right. Yeah. And it was $44 billion in those mid-1980s dollars. Um, heaven knows what it would be now, but I think it helped inform the Tax Reform Act of 1986 or 1987 by, through the awareness of we need to make the energy subsidy picture more fair. So I think that had some effect. What do you think the situation is now with the subsidies? I haven't tallied. Other people tally what the subsidies are. I think they're lower than they were and when I studied it 40 years ago, almost 40 years ago. But globally, if you believe the uh, International Monetary Fund, it's, it's something like $500 billion globally for both production and consumption subsidies. I think production subsidies are the more important because they leverage the market into uh, a false sense of what the price of what extracting oil and gas for example, should be. And so it steers the companies into a sense that their development costs are lower because they get subsidized to do so. Right. I mean, not every oil company does, but many of them do. And my belief is that uh, a level playing field should be had between competing energy forms. You wouldn't say we have a level playing field now, would you? No, I would not. Still, we still... No, I mean, we still subsidize photovoltaics and we subsidize electric vehicle development and purchase of cars and EV charging stations. And um, I would rather see desubsidization across the board as long as we hmm. impose the cost of using each resource. That might mean strategic minerals for building batteries that we should take more care of uh, reducing environmental impacts for, for that, but also uh, um, put the cost of using fossil fuels in terms of ill health effects like asthma and other things and the cost of climate change into the cost of fossil fuels. In internalizing the externalities, right? That's right. Yeah, really, really focusing on the health effects, the security impacts, all that stuff. And then both consumers and producers and everyone in between get the message that the cost of using these particular resources is going to predictably rise over the next years or, or even decades so that we can accelerate the development of more benign forms of transportation and buildings and, and equipment. It's really happening, isn't it? It's just not happening as fast as we would like to see. That's exactly right. Yes. <laughs> then you went in on. Fact, we, in fact, we have to accelerate uh, globally. You know, I, I looked at California's energy emissions or uh, CO2 emissions the other day, and the state, even though it's been very aggressive through carbon and other initiatives, including your own initiatives to install energy efficient equipment and photovoltaic system and, and batteries across the state, that California's emissions haven't really budged much in 20 years, almost 30 years. And so for all the effort California has put into it, we need to accelerate that because California leads this country in showing how it can be done. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
Let, let's talk about greenhouse gas inventories. That 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 seems like that was at least a. Is that fair to say that that was a big part of your career? Would you say maybe a decade's worth of of inventories when you were running climate mitigation services? When I left RMI, uh, my work focused on doing inventories for communities around the country, as well as for some corporations. But yes, uh, I worked for many years doing community-based inventories for the whole, for the whole community, not just for the city municipal buildings, for example, but taking a community-wide emissions approach. Uh, and you and I, through Ecomotion, did a did some projects in California. Uh, mostly, I did some mountain resort towns in in Colorado, but I also worked on um, aviation and package delivery, for example, for FedEx huh. and other large systems, um, saltwater desalination plants proposed for California or new proposed iron mine in Minnesota, or for example, quantifying the whole value chain emissions from producing natural gas 200 kilometers offshore northwest in Australia, liquefying it, freezing it, putting it into large LNG tankers, transporting it to Southern California, delivered at a proposed receiving terminal like Cabrillo of Los Angeles, and quantifying also the end use emissions, which caught a project proponent, which was BHP Billiton in those days, uh, off guard. And they basically lost their petition before the state, to what is it, Ocean, Ocean uh, Committee and Land Use Committee, I forget which exactly, but they were turned down at the state level and they'd already invested millions in lobbying in the USGS and the governor's office and everybody else. They thought they had it in the pocket. But that showed me the value of explaining to users, whether it be governments or individuals or groups, that what the consequences are of developing new fossil fuel resources. You have to account for every step through consumption so that you can compare favorably to alternatives. And just back to inventories for a second, because I remember you really opened up my thinking. You were doing an inventory for maybe the city of Aspen, and you were looking at how do you how do you account for skiers that are, say, coming from Europe on a ski vacation? They're flying into Aspen, and, and obviously they're flying home as well. Are those emissions included in an inventory? And I, there was all sorts of ways that this was handled, right? I mean, it was sort of like, Sometimes when you took off, the first 3,000 feet of emissions were included, and then, then you were off in space, and that wasn't considered part of the inventory. But, but you, I think you took a more holistic approach and said, no, we have to really take account for those flights all the way from Europe and back. Is, is that right? We did. Uh, that wasn't an easy part of the process, but with, with the blessing of the city council in those days, um, they said, let's get a comprehensive inventory of what the climate consequence of Aspen being what it is. And this is basically our industrial hub. This is flying people to come visit our beautiful town, whether it be for skiing or for opera or whatever else. Uh, and we accounted for their emissions from all the way from Europe and Latin America and everywhere else. I mean, you have to make assumptions about how many flights and how many people and how far away do they come from, but at least we got the rudiments of what the complete impact of flying to and from Aspen would be. Nowadays, we would only do one tri one trip from the from the airport. They first, they, sorry, the, from the airport they last departed from to Aspen. Um, 
But in the current inventory that we're doing for ASPA now, we're only looking at a simplistic method of accounting for emissions from jet fuel. And that is how many, how many millions of gallons of jet fuel do we deliver to aircraft that arrive in Aspen? Mm -hmm. So it's only based on fuel sales, which makes it a lot easier. At least it captures the majority of the emissions, if not all of them, certainly not all of them, but it's an easy way to calculate. And if we wanna make a commitment to reduce emissions as Aspen has already done, to reduce air travel related emissions by 30% by 2030. We have a simple, easy to replicate metric. So what, what percentage of approximately, what percentage of Aspen's uh, carbon footprint or greenhouse gas footprint is related to aviation or flying people in and out? When I did my first Aspen comprehensive inventory, it was something around 37% of the total, including then everybody's driving, both tourists and, and locals. Uh, and of course, buildings and, and energy use in buildings and ski lifts, by the way. Um, but that counted emissions for flying in both directions. And it's better practice now to at least only count emissions from flying in one direction. So right. that the other city of origins would capture the other half. Right. And other inventories simply ignore, as you mentioned earlier, any flights uh, at higher altitude. They only look at approaches and takeoffs below 3,000 feet above ground level. And of course, taxiing and ramp uh, ramp um, engine use and that kind of thing, as well as ground equipment and terminals and that sort of thing. So now the using the methodology that you're using now, which um, greenhouse, it sounds like still like the aviation footprint is, is maybe 25%, something like that. You know, I haven't compared um, the consultants greenhouse gas aviation related emissions to the community wide one. So I can't give you, but uh, that's roughly about right. Yeah. Yeah. An important, important thing to capture. So how would you, you, you mentioned Aspen's goal to reduce aviation emissions. How do they do that, Rick? What, what, what mechanisms do they have to tell these, uh, the, the, the Uber rich that love to fly into Aspen, uh, how can they reduce their emissions? Well, it's too early for them to buy an electric or hydrogen-powered airplane, so let's give them a few decades for that. They can increase or start to use increasing amounts of sustainable aviation fuel. That's probably the best approach as fuel costs more, but it reduces the impact per gallon of jet fuel used. Uh, another way is uh, logistics and planning. Many uh, private jetcraft owners get dropped off in Aspen. Maybe there isn't enough parking for the, for the aircraft to stay overnight. So they fly down to rifle for the crew to spend their time down there. And then when the client is ready to leave, they fly back up again and pick up their passengers. That, by the way, also means that the aircraft probably doesn't buy jet fuel here at Aspen at $9 a gallon. They buy it at rifle. And so we're missing that quantification. Yeah. Uh, but sustainable aviation fuel probably is, is the first one. There are carbon offset programs that are useful to look into that need to be verified and credible. But there are programs out there that are viable yeah. carbon offset programs for aviation. And so the city could require visitors to buy offsets a certain amount or, or use a certain amount of sustainable transportation. You know, by FAA rules, I don't think we can require that. We can suggest it. But in terms of getting federal funding for our airport, uh, I don't think we can require them to buy sustainable aviation fuel. 
but we can uh, require the company that sells fuel at Aspen, which isn't Pitton County itself or the city of Aspen, uh, it's, a, it's a separate company. We can at least request that they will buy increasing amounts of sustainable aviation fuel. And they started to do that a year and a half ago. So we're well on our way and sustainable aviation fuel also has to be produced somewhere closer than Los Angeles where Aspen gets its sustainable aviation fuel from. So we need to shorten that supply chain. Mm -hmm. Hopefully we can set up a facility in Denver to acquire jet fuel from them. Um, and bear in mind, the sustainable aviation fuel is perfectly a drop-in fuel for conventional jet fuel, but uses um, 30 emits 30 to 50% less carbon per gallon used. And hopefully that will increase past half as time goes on. Is that because there's more ethanol blended in or, or what, what causes the reduction? Um, credible sustainable aviation fuel is warranted to be used to be uh, produced from renewable sources. It might be uh, waste oil, it might be um, other waste products. It's uh, in Norway, they use uh, tree slashings from forestry, for example, and, and generate a substantial portion of their jet fuel from forestry waste. Hmm, very interesting. So let's talk about the Climate Accountability Institute. And this is, yes, this is, you're the executive director and you have been probably for a decade or more. Right. Um, and I think you're best known for this carbon majors study. Um, but, but why don't you first talk about what your mission is and then we'll get into that study a little bit. Our mission is to do the quantitative work to hold fossil fuel companies accountable for climate change and for climate damages. And so what that means in practice is that we do the quantification and we started with one simple oil and gas company over its history. And the notion was that if you do an historical analysis of how much fossil fuel each company produced and accounted for non-fuel uses of its petroleum, for example, you would have a rough estimate of how much of the carbon in the fossil fuels it produced on an annual basis ended up in the atmosphere. That's what drives climate change. The United States is by far the largest emitter historically. Somewhere around 26% of global total emissions have come from US, uh, from the territory of the, of the United States. And so it's a wealthy countries and wealthy corporations primary obligation in my view to reduce emissions first and we focus first on standard oil in 1882 uh, john rockefeller's little company that became once it absorbed and or merged with mobile exxon merged with mobile uh several decades ago it became exxon mobile and i quantified the emissions from that one company over its history that was maybe three and a half percent of global emissions from all fossil fuels since the beginning of the industrial era. So then my colleagues in Europe who had sponsored this program said, well, we probably need to add to that database. So we expanded it to what is now over a hundred entities that historically account for almost 70% of all global emissions from all sources of human impact. And then we extend that analysis to model, for example, each company and all of these companies impact on CO2 concentration, on radiative forcing, on surface temperature response, 
and on sea level rise from the increased temperature of the atmosphere melting the glaciers, for example, or, or Greenland. And so we have now done scientific modeling and published peer-reviewed papers, not only what each company has contributed, but also what its effect on sea level rise what might be, uh, not only now, but, but in the future. And then that piques the interest of attorneys that have filed a dozen, two dozen or more cases in various jurisdictions around the United States, many of them in California, claiming and wanting um, the defendants to help pay for the economic cost of preparing for abating the impacts of climate change, sea level rise impact on Oakland's airport, for example, or San Francisco's harbor facilities or water treatment facilities, et cetera. And so there are several dozen cases around the world that are suing for uh, damages by major fossil fuel companies, in part based on our work, but also based on how these companies have deceived shareholders and the public about the science and knowledge of climate change. Now, of those carbon majors, 90, 90 companies, you said around 100, with 63% of the C, all CO2 and CH4 and methane, 56 of them are oil and gas companies, seven are cement manufacturers, 30, or then there's a number of coal companies as well. But the biggest, the biggest emitter globally is Saudi Aramco, is that right? It's an enormous company that produces uh, almost 10 million barrels of oil uh, every day. So a substantial portion of global supply. They have ramped up to become the largest oil and gas company in the world, bar none. Historically speaking, if you go back, you know, 100 years, then the likes of Chevron and ExxonMobil and BP and Shell will eclipse Saudi Aramco and, for that matter, Gazprom, the Russian gas company. But if you take a view from 1965 to 2020, for example, then Saudi Aramco beats out everybody else. And Gazprom would be number two, and then the other Western oil gas majors would fill in the top 10. How did, how did those big producers feel about your study? Or did, they, did you get any reaction from them? I got no bouquets or uh, trays of chocolate in return for my hard work. <laughs> I didn't expect that. I don't think they like my work. I don't think they respect it. I, uh, but it stands on its own. It is, the methodology has been peer-reviewed, embedded, and it's robust. Uh, I feel confidence that we're in the, on the, in the ballpark on these numbers. And bear in mind, companies declare their scope one and scope two emissions to their shareholders. That's a small portion of their total emissions by my methodology, because I estimate both scope one emissions from their operations, such as flaring, for example, or vented CO2, or for that matter, fugitive methane. That's maybe 10 or 12% of the total if you include the emissions from the products they extract, refine, and sell to consumers using their fuels as intended, namely to burn them. And so the larger proportion, 90 or 88%, comes from the products they sell. In my view, they have some duty of care and responsibility to help address the climate damages from those products that they knowingly put into, into commerce, knowing since the 1950s of, uh, or, or perhaps 1960s, would damage the climate and the stability of the climate 
and hence be a threat not only to their own business, but to the world at large. Did they do something to mitigate and reduce their future production of fossil fuels or to to warn the public or Congress that this would be a big, big problem? No, they instead chose to obfuscate the science, deny the science, and basically lie to the public about what the consequences of climate change would be, particularly their own role in fostering climate change. And are they are they now are they now having to pivot and having to? Oh, absolutely. I mean, they spent years and hundreds of millions of dollars to deceive and the public and Congress to not act. The main reason was to delay any congressional action to curb fossil fuel use. They succeeded in that. And once that writing was on the wall, they could also see, well, we don't need to lie anymore. We can agree with the IPCC and the findings of most scientists, the vast majority of scientists, that climate change is real. And we want and uh, we support government action to uh, follow the agreement of the IPCC and the COP at Paris in 2015, which is a whole temperature response to two degrees centigrade since industrial times, or uh, even more ambitiously, try to keep it at or below 1.5 degrees centigrade. We're already at near 1.2 degrees centigrade, so that would be extremely difficult. But yes, the oil companies have pivoted. They uh, claim to be responsible fossil fuel companies now, and they support government action to curb fossil fuel use in alignment with Paris. Uh, but meanwhile, they're investing tens of billions of dollars in additional resources that if they succeed in selling those resources will sink the chances of keeping temperature response below 1.5 degrees. Right. But they're risking their own shareholders' money too on their own. These new resources may not be producible if there's a global agreement to get serious about climate change. We're not yeah. there yet. We have, an, we have an agreement in writing but we don't have enough action in terms of national energy policy to really reduce production, refining, and use of oil, gas, and coal. We're getting there, but we're not there yet. We still haven't even peaked emissions. And it's, not, it's almost, uh, you know, our commitment is to be net zero globally by mid-century, 2050, 2060. Oil companies, by and large, are saying, well, we will be responsible and we will commit, at least the European companies do, we will commit to be net zero by mid-century by buying um, offsets and other mechanisms, carbon capture and sequestration. U.S. companies say nothing of the kind. All they commit to in their ambition is to be net zero with their operational emissions. That's maybe a tenth a tenth or uh, yeah. an eighth of their total emissions. Mm -hmm. We need to focus on reducing fossil fuel production and use. Let's have a couple of softball questions to wrap up here. Um, I want to just talk about your house, but you mentioned it a little bit. Um, but it, Rick has this amazing house. It's on the top, on top of a hill uh, in old snow mass. You have, I think you have the best view of anybody I know. Um, I, I, I would agree with you, Ted. Thanks. It's just incredible. And if you throw them, softball hard enough uh down the hill you could hit my house that's right yeah i figure seven i would do it but no, <laughs> baseball but that house um let's talk a little bit about how you made that as efficient as you have made it you know as i mentioned earlier amory was an inspiration in just kind of setting the tone the ambition 
and the ability to think through how do you capture the sun and reduce heat loss cost effectively with current materials and design. And so a few basic principles align themselves. Orient properly towards the south, have highly efficient windows that leak as little heat as possible. Uh, put thermal mass in the house so you can store the heat energy that you get during the sunny days of which we have plenty in Colorado. This is a very easy climate to design for in this respect. And then buy extra insulation for your slab and, and your walls. I've got eight inches of foam insulation on outside my rammed earth walls. And the rammed earth walls themselves store the heat. And the whole envelope is, is super efficient. Could I add more insulation? Yes, but this works. You know, I capture at least 80% of the utility bill through passive solar design. And then the rest, the 20% that remains is a propane-fired boiler that heats my slab only in the rooms where I need it. It's really great. And as you said earlier uh, in the podcast, uh, you probably spent less money than a conventional home owner would have building a house. Yes, although I did a lot of the work myself and my friends, such as yourself, came up to do uh, barn raising on the roof and that sort of thing. So, you know, my costs were obviously less per square foot, but uh, yeah, I would say I was about half of the typical building cost in those days, which has ballooned tremendously in this area since, but you know, I built my house for $36 a square foot. And I think you can build a driveway for that these days. <laughs> Last question. Um, we talked about your skiing. Rick, you're an amazing skier. You're always, I remember skiing Thanks, with you. You just sort of end up on a ridge over here and then be jumping down. And uh, while the rest of us were staying on the trails, you were exploring places that you're not supposed to go. You're also a, a pilot, and that's been a passion. And, and you travel a lot these days. Um, am I capturing your passions here? Uh, I love flying, but I have actually uh, mostly retired from flying these days. I sold the share in my airplane to, to my partner. Um, he's taken great care of the airplane and uh, I basically retired from private flying, but I still fly to the occasional meeting and, and conference, although much less now since COVID than, than previously, because I was testifying in Manila for the Philippines Commission on Human Rights, for example, on the Carbon Matrix Project that we mentioned earlier, and other conferences in, in Europe and elsewhere on various ways to oppose new carbon producing infrastructure, like in Africa, for example. I haven't visited Africa, but one of my projects now is to elucidate how much climate emissions can follow from Total Energy's proposed pipeline to bring crude oil from Uganda to world markets through a 1,440 kilometer heated pipeline. And so I add in maritime transportation and refining and end use emissions. And we end up with a carbon bomb that we don't need approaching 400 million tons a year. So we're filed affidavits in the East Africa Court of Justice to oppose this project along with my colleagues. Such interesting work, Rick. Really, really interesting. And you must be proud of the impact you've had. Well, we set out to give notice to the oil and gas and coal companies that they could not continue with business as usual, whether it would be because of their deception over their plans to expand reserves and use of fossil fuels. And I think we have achieved that 
at least to send a warning shot across their bow that these super tankers need to be phased out. Absolutely. Let's leave it there, Rick. Rick, thanks so much for for joining yeah. me. Thanks for your yeah, insights. More, more so, thanks for all you've done. I, I, very, very impressive to me and to many people. So keep it up. Yeah, well, thanks. I really appreciate it. Thanks for the chance to have a chat with you, Ted. That's it. Thanks for listening to Flanagan's Ecologic. We'll see you next time.